The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. If we haven't met, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here at Westway Christian Church. This morning we are going to be in Kings, 1 Kings chapter 21. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you in the seat back or a large print Bible in the back, you'll find the page numbers uh, there in your bulletin. And one of the best things that you can do is follow along in your Bible with us, because we want you to see where and how we come to the conclusions that we come to when we, when we speak on a Sunday morning. I was talking to our youngest son last week. Um, he's currently in the Middle East during mission, mission work. He'll be back in the U.S. next Monday and then back here in Scotts Bluff the week after that. So I'm really excited to see him. And he was telling me about this conversation that he had had with someone about the importance of Scripture. And he, he wrote something up because part of what he's doing is, is for classwork. So I want to I read something that he sent me about this conversation. Once before, Hythe and I had met in his bookstore. We exchanged names and pleasantries, but didn't talk for long. Today that changed. I went to the bookstore to read scripture, and before I read, I prayed for conversations. I was interrupted by an older woman who only spoke Arabic, which got my confidence in Arabic up. After that, I read Acts 23 and Colossians 2. As I was packing up, Hythe walked up and said hi to me. Are you having a Bible study? Yes, I just got done. Good for you. I don't really miss those. Oh, did you used to be a Christian? John asked. Yes. Well, why did you leave, if you don't mind me asking? No, it's fine. Religions just have so many rules. Like, you can't listen to music, and you can't go to certain places, and eventually I just got sick of it, so I liberated myself from religion. John said, can I read you something that I read tonight? You mentioned all the rules, and I think that's an interesting passage considering what you just said. He said, yes, I'd like that. I only open up a Bible twice a year, so it's okay. John said, can I come over and sit with you? And the man said, yes. So John sat down, and he opened up his Bible in front of this man. He has an English and Arabic Bible. And he started, he read Colossians 2, 16 to 23, and I want to share this with you. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person who goes into great detail about what they've seen, they're piped up, puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental, elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle Do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. 
with their self such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So here's this text that John just read to this man who said, Christianity and lots of religions are just filled with rules. And the text that John had just read moments earlier talked about the, the, the invalidity of man-made rules when compared to knowing Christ. After I read this, he was quiet for about 10 seconds. Then he took the Bible out of my hands and looked at the passage for about 30. He closed it, keeping his finger in the page, and said, You know, the Bible has a lot of laws, too. Our conversation continued for maybe 10 more minutes. We talked for a few minutes about how the Bible's laws are different than other religious rules made by humans. Next, he talked mostly about how all roads uh, lead to Rome and we should not allow religious labels to divide us. I believe he realized that he didn't believe what he was saying as much as he thought he did. I hope to see him again and continue this conversation. I also pray that God's word does not return void and I can begin cultivating this seed even as someone else harvests the crop. See, if we want to have meaningful conversations with people about Jesus, then then we need to do two things, at least two things. We need to be familiar with God's word. We need to know when to use it. We know we need to know how to use it. And we also need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And one of the primary ways that our minds are renewed is through the constant intake of Scripture. This is one of the main, one of the primary ways that God renews our mind and makes our minds like him. We need to be reading it and studying it and listening to it. And I've heard some people say that li- like listening to the Bible on an app isn't the same as reading it um, from the Bible itself. And here's what I want to tell you. Before they had Bibles, you know what they did? They spoke it to one another. So when we break out, this will be one of the only times I ever talk positively about a phone, but when we break out our phone and we listen to God's word being read to us, we're actually engaging in, in a practice that is, that is far older than any of us in this room. We are engaging scripture through oral tradition. We are hearing it read to us and read over us. So on Sunday mornings, we invite you to follow along with us because we want to invite you into the story of Scripture itself. I think it's really easy for us to be a critic of something that we've ourselves never read, and we don't want you to be ignorant of God's Word. We want you to follow along with us. There are going to be times, too, where we quote other sources. I did that just last week, I talked about the Heidelberg Catechism. I even talked about John Calvin. And if you've been here for a while, you've heard me talk about C.S. Lewis or Francis Schaeffer. And what I want you to know is, I'm not equating any of those works with Scripture. Okay? Those things are helpful to us in understanding and providing context for what God tells us. But, but those things are not Scripture. And one of the things I do not want you to hear on a Sunday morning when I, when I quote from 
the Heidelberg Catechism or a quote from John Calvin or C.S. Lewis or Francis Schaeffer, I don't want you to think that I'm elevating those things to the level of Scripture because they're not. When we gather together as a body, we're here to proclaim Jesus as Lord. And reading and studying and discussing the Bible is just one of the ways that we do that. And we're also not afraid of your questions, which is why each week we give you the opportunity to ask questions about something that you've seen or heard here at Westway Christian Church. The easiest or one of the easiest ways to do that, well, first off, the easiest way would just be to ask. Like if you hear something that you don't understand, you could just, you could ask. Another way to do that is to send a text to the number that um, will be on the screen in a second. If it's not on the screen, I know it's in your bulletin. Um, and then on Tuesday mornings, we go onto our church Facebook page and answer those questions. And then a little bit later in the day, you can go just to our regular website, westwaychurch.com media page, and you'll see that Q&A on there. We're finishing up our series on the Ten Commandments today, and I don't know about you, but it's, it's been, a, for me personally, it's been a really enlightening and fun series to study. I've loved going through the Old Testament. I think sometimes we, we get stuck on the New Testament, and we only talk about the New Testament. So this series has been a lot of fun. It's describing for us what life in his kingdom is like. And like we said on the very first day of this series, when God gave those Ten Commandments, it was just an invitation. He was just saying, these are the rules of the kingdom. If you want me to be your God, and I want to be your God, then these are the rules. This is, this is how we have a relationship. This is how we have a covenant together. This is how we get along. And those rules are pretty simple. She'll have no other gods before me. She'll not make any idols. I know those are out of order, so I'm going to read them in my piece of paper here. <laughs> Honor the Sabbath rest. His name is to be honored. See, and I can't even keep the order. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. And today, the final commandment is You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant or female servant, or his ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Well, what's the big deal with coveting? Of all of the things that God could close out his expectations of life in his kingdom, of of what that looks like for us, why coveting? And my guess is, is, as you've seen throughout this series, none of these commandments look anything like what we think they ought to mean. There are so many more layers. And this morning, I want to share with you something from 1 Kings 21. So let's read 1 Kings 21 together. Now, there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. One day... Ahab said to Naboth, since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, I would like to buy it to use it as a vegetable garden. I'll give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I will pay you for it. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. 
So Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall and refused to eat. Anybody ever had a day like that? Where you just go home and you put your face to the wall and you cry? What's the matter? His wife Jezebel asked him. What's made you so upset that you're not eating? I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused, Ahab told her. Are you the king of Israel or not? Jezebel demanded, get up and eat something. Don't worry about it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with a seal, and sent them to the elders and other leaders of the town where Naboth lived. In In the letter she commanded, call the citizens together for a time of fasting and give Naboth a place of honor. Then seat two scoundrels across from him who will accuse him of cursing God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and other town leaders followed the instructions Jezebel had written in the letters. They called for a fast and put Naboth at a prominent place before the people. Then the two scoundrels came and sat across from him. And they accused Naboth before all the people, saying, He cursed God and the king. So he was dragged outside the town and stoned to death. The town leaders then sent word to Jezebel. Naboth has been stoned to death. When Jezebel heard the news, she said to Ahab, You know the vineyard Naboth wouldn't sell you? Well, you can have it now. He's dead. So Ahab immediately went down to the vineyard of Naboth to claim it. But the Lord said to Elijah, Go down to meet the king of Israel who rules in Samaria. He will be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you have done this, the dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they lick the blood of Naboth. So my enemy, you have found me, Ahab exclaimed to Elijah. Yes, Elijah answered. I've come because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I'm going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam at Nebat and the family of Bahasha, of a son of Ahijah, for you have made me very angry and have led Israel into sin. And regarding Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will eat Jezebel's body at the plot of land in Jezreel. The members of Ahab's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. No one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. His worst outrage was worshiping idols, just as the Amorites had done, the people whom the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. But when Ahab heard this message, he tore his clothing, dressed in burlap, and fasted. He even slept in burlap and went about in deep mourning. Then another message from the Lord came to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this, I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. Several weeks ago, I talked about James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and we're going to do that again a little bit today. Temptation comes from our own desires. This is what Ahab does. He sees something that isn't his, and he wants it anyway. And these desires entice us, and they drag us away. 
And his wife Jezebel, who is supposed to be his helpmate, plays into his sinfulness and his selfishness and arranges for the death of Naboth. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Naboth shows up, is falsely accused, he's taken outside and murdered. And Ahab gets his garden. And Ahab is confronted by a prophet, and Ahab repents, and the Lord gives him a message that's very similar to the one that the Lord gave to David. The generations following you will face the consequences of your sin. And that's really the part that none of us likes. A few weeks ago, someone asked a question about that David and Bathsheba story, and the question was essentially, why why did David seemingly get off so easy? See, we don't like to think about the reality that other people pay the price for our sin. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Just what do we think happened when Jesus was on the cross for us? Is that just a a story in a Sunday school coloring book? No, Jesus paid the price for our sin. He was killed for our sin. And it's time for us to get real about what sin is. It leads to death, and there are consequences for it. And sometimes we face the consequences of our sin, and other times people lay in the bed that we have made for them. It's really important for us to grasp this. Sin isn't a little problem. Sin isn't a character flaw. Sin is something that that separates us from God. It's something that separates us from our relationship with one another. And here's where I think some of us are right now. Like when we hear that story of Ahab and Jezebel and Naboth, I, I think where, where some of us are right now is, well, I might covet, but I've never had false charges brought against someone. I might covet, but I've never killed someone or had someone killed to get what I want. I might covet, but I've never stolen. Right? That's, that's what's going on in some of our minds right now. Like, I'm not that bad. And my question is, is that really your standard? Because here's, here's what I hear you say when we ask that question. Coveting is fine as long as I don't have someone killed to get what I want. Coveting is fine as long as I don't steal from someone else. Coveting is fine as long as I don't bring up false charges against someone else to get what I want. And I don't think that's what any of us mean. Because there's nothing fine, there's nothing okay with just coveting. And I want to encourage you to get, to get out of that headspace. This is something we've, we've talked about a number of times. Stop comparing yourself to other people's sinfulness. Stop comparing yourself to other people's sinfulness. The curve that God is going to grade you on is not the curve of other people. The curve that God gives each one of us is what Jesus has done for us. We are not judged in our sin based on what other people do. And I need to hear that 
And you need to hear that. We need to stop judging ourselves based on the sinfulness of other people. Coveting is a sin and it has consequences. And we saw this in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They were not satisfied with what God had given to them. You can eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden except for this one. And they wanted what they weren't allowed to have, what they weren't supposed to have. They ultimately weren't satisfied with God's provision, and they paid the consequence for that. They were kicked out of the garden. They were removed from the garden. And then today, we, we bear the consequence of their sin with our sin. We saw this in the story of David and Bathsheba a few weeks ago. There was not only the death of a child, but there was a legacy in shambles and a kingdom that would eventually be in ruins and would be divided. And we see this in our lives today. Coveting is a sin. You must not covet your neighbor's house. Well, they sure have a lot of nice stuff. I'm so tired of living in this neighborhood. We live in a real dump. It must be nice to have such a beautifully decorated house and a nice yard. You must not covet your neighbor's wife. I wish my wife aged like she did. I wish I had married someone like her. I'd be so much happier. Look at her husband. He's always so friendly. Look at her husband, how he takes care of their kids. Look at her husband, how he does the things he says he's going to do on the very first time. Why am I stuck with him when there are so many other men out there? He must not covet his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey. My car is such a piece of junk. It's not fair. All our friends take such great vacations. We can't even even afford to go to our grandparents' house. Why am I stuck in this job? I wish my kids were more like their kids. Let's not covet anything else that belongs to your neighbor. I wish I could be smart like he is. My life would be so much better if I looked like her. Why couldn't I get a normal family? I wish I could run like him or jump like him or throw like her. Why is everything in my life so hard when everything for everyone else is so easy? See, the consequence for our covetousness is simple. We strive and we strive and we strive and we are absolutely filled with discontentment. Discontentment breeds anger and it breeds bitterness. We are unable to be happy for anyone who gets anything that's better than ours. And instead, we ask the question, well, why not me? What did they do to deserve that? We think, if only I had blank, I would finally be happy. What goes in your blank? 
How do you respond to that question? If I only had this, I would be happy. Last week, I asked that question on my Facebook page. If I only had blank, I'd finally be happy. What goes in your blank? I'm not going to share everything that everyone said, but some responded in funny ways. A friend of mine from Illinois said, If I only had a brain, I would finally be happy. Somebody said, if I only had a pet squirrel that does tricks, I'd finally be happy. Some were deeply insightful and personal. From a girl whose father was murdered by his wife several years ago, if I only had my dad, I would finally be happy. From a friend whose mom died of cancer, there was only a cure for cancer, I'd finally be happy. One person said, I've been pondering this question for a few days now. I seriously cannot come up with anything. There are things I want, but they are not within my power to have, earn, manage, or create. And if they're not within my power, then it's God's. My favorite one was, if I only had more Mulholland in my life, I would be happy. Here's the reality. I'm not out to minimize anybody's pain. I'm not out to minimize anyone's hurts that they have experienced in our lives. And there are many things that people in this room have experienced that that I've never had to experience that are far worse than anything I've had to experience. And there are some things that I have gone through that that many of you haven't. And I don't want to minimize any of those things. But here's the reality. We are all told that if we can just get the next thing, if we can just attain that next job or a little bit more pay, then we would find rest and peace. We are all told that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And if we just try a little harder, then then our wildest dreams will come true. But here's the reality. Discontentment is the currency of our economy. Our economy thrives on my discontentment, and it thrives on your discontentment. Our economy depends upon the reality that we are discontent with life. For those of us that still watch commercials, that's all commercials are, is selling us our discontentment, telling us what we need more of. Last year, we devoted an entire series to the book of Ecclesiastes. It was Solomon's detailed search for meaning, purpose, and satisfaction in his life. And I want you to remember that what he came up with Despite pursuing wealth and women and wisdom and fame and acclaim, every single one of those things proved to be worthless. And as I shared during that series, Solomon had the means by which he could research all of those things far beyond anything we could today. Solomon had wealth beyond imagination. 
So he had the means to search through all of those things. So Solomon was richer than any of us. And because he asked for wisdom and God gave it to him, Solomon was smarter than any of us. And we live in this place in 2019 where we think like we can figure it all out. Finally, we are the people that we have been waiting for our entire lives. We're the ones that are going to solve this whole problem of satisfaction. Like, we got this. And here's, here's the concluding words of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived according to Scripture. Everything is meaningless, completely meaningless. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. And Jesus has this to say to us in the context of our desire for material things. Seek the kingdom of God above all things, and he will give you everything you need. And here's Paul in Philippians chapter 4. Not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything who Christ who gives me strength. And that has nothing to do with throwing a football. That text, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength, has nothing to do with sports. It has nothing to do with education. It has nothing to do with how we go and find our job. It has everything to do with finding contentment in Christ and being satisfied in him alone. God is calling his people to be content with what he gives them. And what that doesn't mean is don't have dreams. Don't work hard. That's not what this command is about. It is about finding satisfaction in places where it's not going to be found. And when we pursue meaning and value and worth and satisfaction in places other than God, you will be let down. We will all be let down. And maybe, that's, maybe we don't believe that. Maybe we, maybe we don't agree with that statement that ultimately we're going to be let down. So I just have a question, and whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian, if you're living in that pursuit of next, here's my question for you. How's that working out for you? Really, how, how's, how's that working out? In your life, as you have pursued next thing after next thing after next thing after next thing, How's it working out? When, when are you going to be done? When are you going to recognize that your satisfaction doesn't come from those things? And I get it because all of those things look so promising to us, don't they? We live in this space of, if I could, it's like right there. If I could just get it. If I could just take hold of that thing, it's just right there. If I just spent five more hours each week in the office this week, I will get that thing that I want and I'll, I'll have it. 
It's not true. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote, speaking of C.S. Lewis. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud puddles in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What Lewis is saying is, we would rather make mud puddles in the, in the alley behind our house than build a sandcastle on the beach. Because we are far too easily pleased. And coveting is really about contentment. And Jesus came and he said that we can have life to the fullest. And if we are to be filled with covetousness for anything, it ought to be a desire for him and his kingdom. If we are going to covet anything, if we are going to pursue anything with the energy and the time that we pursue things that are meaningless, we ought to pursue the righteousness of Jesus. Let's not find satisfaction in things that are ultimately empty and meaningless. God is inviting us into his kingdom. And as a kind and loving and gracious and merciful and ultimate king, he is giving us everything we need to have a full life in his kingdom. He's giving us everything that we need. And he is offering this to us. And we either want to be a part of his kingdom or we don't want to be a part of his kingdom. Let's pray. God, thanks for, thanks for your word. Thank you that we can read your word. That we have examples of what it looks like to not keep your commandments so that they would serve as warnings to us. That's something Paul talked about in his letters that the things of old were written down so that we might learn from them. God, we are not smarter than Solomon. We're not richer than Solomon. We don't have the means to pursue meaning and purpose like Solomon did. So I pray that we would stop that pursuit. That we would humbly submit to the things that that you have demonstrated for years, for generations, for eons, for centuries, that you alone are our provision. You alone are our provider. And let us not want what we haven't got. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.